Please turn in your Bibles again to Jonah and tonight to the chapter 2 once more. Mindful again that we've taken five messages to go through the first two chapters. Uh, so tomorrow, Thursday, Friday, we'll be going quite quickly through the last two chapters. And trust we'll get even help in those meetings in the next number of nights. But tonight, chapter 2 of Jonah. And then we're going to ask you also to turn across to Matthew chapter 12. But let's read Jonah 2 first, and then we'll turn across to Matthew's gospel in the 12th chapter. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly, and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth clothed me round about, the weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains, the earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God." When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out to Jonah upon the dry land. And then I encourage you to keep put a marker, please, in Jonah chapter 2, if you have one, and turn across to Matthew's gospel and the chapter number 12. We're going to read there from the verse uh, number 38. Matthew's gospel, chapter 12, and verse number 38. And then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. We'll end the reading there. May God be pleased again to bless the public reading of his word. Let's bow together, please, once more in prayer. God's been so kind to us. A sense of his presence in the last number of meetings. We praise the Lord for his goodness. I must say, last night was an unusual meeting. I certainly felt the Lord's help and hearing your testimonies of God's grace. We want the Lord to Bless us again tonight. We need a fresh sense of the Lord's presence. No two meetings are the same. Not for a preacher, not for the hearer. We simply need the Lord's presence. Let's pray to that end now. May God be pleased to bless us around the Word. Eternal God and Father, we come before Thee. Again, we're very mindful, O God, of a sense of our need. This is the first time, O God, this meeting has taken place. We're entering new territory. A new time before the Word. Oh God, bless our hearts. 
Thank you again for the young people with us this evening. Bring the word with power to their souls. We pray to God for each and every soul, particularly those tonight. And they are not in Christ. We pray for those, O oh God, who've entered this room. And they're strangers to God and to grace. O oh God, may the word of God come with such power to their lives. The leave here changed. Never the same again. O oh Lord, encourage our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When it comes to making important decisions, I think we all understand the desire for certainty. We want to know that we're making the right choice or the right decision. We're going in the right path. There is no bigger decision than to follow Christ Jesus. No other decision has the same impact upon a person's life. No other decision. People say, well, what about the choice of a husband or a wife? Well, even that is secondary to the choice to follow Jesus Christ. There is no bigger decision. To follow Christ changes everything. It has such a radical impact upon a person's life, or it ought to have, that they should give it careful thought and be certain about the decision they are making. I find myself drawn again tonight to address these two wings of young people here. I understand there are others in this room, and perhaps you may be 70 years old, and you're still confronted with that same decision, and for you it's still the biggest decision you're going to make. But for you young people, I know what it's like. You're raised in a Christian home. You hear the Word of God from your very, very little. You know these stories. You know all about Jonah and that great fish. But you're at a point in your life right now that you are about to experience freedom and choice. You've got to make your own mind up. Decide for yourself what way will you go. And I tell you again, there is no bigger choice than to decide to follow Jesus. The Lord knew this. In a portion of Scripture where He encourages people to count the cost. He says to them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. In some ways, I, I feel sorry for some of you young people because you're raised in, in a Christian country and you've seen so many people make professions of faith in Christ and yet it makes no difference in their lives. That's not true Christianity. That's false. It's as false as any false religion. See, those who follow Christ are willing to hate their lives for Christ's sake. Whoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The call to be a Christian is a call to radical obedience, a call to put Christ first no matter the cost, even to your own life. It's the 31st of October, Reformation Day. And you think of the example of Martin Luther and one who risked his life and his livelihood having decided to follow Christ. You see, my desire tonight is to tell you that it is right to follow Christ with confidence, knowing that Christ is the truth. 
This is a decision that you can make with absolute certainty. It is not a decision made with, I hope it works out for the best. It's a decision that can be made with absolute confidence. I remember back when I was your age, and I was in Ballymena Academy, and uh, some of the senior students were asked to go and take the Christian Union. Uh, we were down through the school, probably first or third year, the younger groups, and a very good friend, very sincere, and desiring to encourage the young people to follow the Savior, made a comment. And the comment was of this idea, if Christianity is true, then there's heaven and hell, and you better not take the chance of not following Christ. The idea being, if there's no God, well, you die and that's it, nothing to lose. But if we're right, if the Christian gospel is right, well, you better not take the chance on that. And they, they meant so well. So very sincere. But young people, I am not asking you to follow Christ on a venture. I'm asking you to follow Christ because it's real and true and certain. There is no doubt as to the authenticity of Christ Jesus as the only Savior of sinners. You may say to me, well, preacher, I'm not sure I buy that. Surely, the Bible tells us that faith is in the unseen. We're not, we're not believing something we can see and touch and lay hold upon. Even the Bible says that, Hebrews chapter 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So how can you be so certain about something that is not seen? And there we find ourselves confronted again with that great misunderstanding. You see, believing in the unseen does not mean believing in the uncertain. It's not the same. Something can be unseen and still be certain. This world will tell you, you Christian, you're pie in the sky when you die, hopes. No confidence, no certainty. You're, just, you're hoping that when this world comes to an end, that you, you chose the right side. No! Believing in the unseen is not believing in the uncertain. We can follow Christ with confidence because we know it to be absolutely true. You see, God has graciously furnished us with ample proof of His marvelous mercies. We don't need to doubt. You see, in Jesus' day, we're in Matthew 12, there was skepticism and uncertainty regarding His claims. Here is one coming, I've been sent from heaven. Here is one who, it is more and more noised abroad, He is the one who claims to be the Christ, the great I am, the bread from heaven itself. Of course, we understand there were those who questioned those claims. That They came with questions. And in the example of the scribes and the Pharisees here, they, they came with a spirit of scorning and unbelief. Oh, there were some sincere seekers. People like Nicodemus, who, though timid, came with a genuine desire to know more about this great teacher. But the majority of these rulers and religious authorities were hardened and they were blinded in their hearts and they couldn't be convinced. And so Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, they come and they say, we would see a sign from thee. A sign. 
Now, I don't assume that we all understand what this word sign is all about. It's a common word in the New Testament, and around 80 times it's used. Also translated with the words wonder or miracle. The base of the word itself in the original is important. It has the idea to signify something. A sign does what a sign does. It signifies something. It indicates something. If you like, it makes something known. One of the ways we see that is a sign is used of a miracle or a wonder by which God authenticates the man sent by him. And sometimes people think miracles are common. In the Bible, they're not. Moses, Elijah, Elisha, the apostles, and Jesus, those are the landmark times of miracles in the Scriptures. And each time they occur is to authenticate the man and the message. These are signs. And so they come and they say, we want a sign. They're really saying, we want proof. Now, there's already been ample proof. Remember John the Baptist in prison? He sends the disciples. Are you the one to come, or should we look for another? And he says, well, the blind see, the lame walk, the poor of the gospel preach to them. There's been plenty of proof for those whose hearts are open to receive the proof. But leaving leave that aside, it is also the case when you see the parallel of Matthew 12 in Luke 11, they're seeking a sign, and here's the two words, from heaven. And so it may well be the case that their desire here is, is not the Lord to continue to prove himself, but to do the extravagant, to like the signs on Sinai, and the thunderings and the lightnings, or the signs of the fire from heaven, like Elijah did on Mount Carmel, a sign from heaven. And the Lord says, he, he doesn't mince his words, he says to the people, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. He's saying to them, there's already ample proof, but you are so determined to reject me, you still seek a sign. But no sign shall be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Again, our attention is often drawn to the no sign shall be given to it. And by the way, before I go on, that's a, that's a fearful thing. And you say again, older folks, please forgive me, don't take this the wrong way, but young people... You've had 10 or 12 years under the Word of God, ample proof of the truth of the Christian gospel. And you may leave here rejecting it and turn away for God without ever perhaps having another opportunity to hear the gospel. God does bring judgment upon those who turn their face away from the Word. But at the same time, these words in Matthew chapter 12 make it clear that whilst this generation would not receive what they asked for, some spectacular sign from heaven, yet there was a sign that was to be given. And it is called here in verse number 39, the sign of the prophet Jonas. God will furnish proof of the gospel. As he furnished proof to Nineveh in Jonah and his ministry, so God will furnish proof of his gospel. A gospel that is certain. Now, please understand what is meant when you get to verse number 40. For it says, For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the wheel's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
That's a sign. It's defined for us. What is the sign of Jonas? Well, the Lord tells us it's these three days and three nights in the whale's belly. Now, I hope this is not too obvious. But the sign is not the fact he was in the belly. The sign is the fact he came out. That's the sign. That's the point. The three days and three nights were spent in the, in the belly. But Jonah 2, verse number 10, And the Lord spoke unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. If he goes to the fish's belly and ends there, the only people that know to tell the tale are the mariners. Not much sign there. The sign is in him being delivered out of the fish's belly. That's the sign. And so in that sense, the sign of the Son of Man is in him being resurrected out of the grave. So the resurrection is the proof of the certainty of the gospel. And if you hear nothing else tonight, please hear those words. Jesus Christ is alive. The gospel is true. Therefore, risk your life for everything. Because gospel truth is the only real truth. And so, what was the purpose of Jonah coming out of the fish? The sign to the Ninevites. The sign of God's truthfulness and God's mercies towards them. And so Christ comes from the grave, the sign of God's marvelous mercies. Jonah coming proves the certainty of the man and the message, the proof of the marvelous mercies of God. Give your life, whatever age you are, let's forget the young people for a minute. Give your life for Christ tonight because it is true. That's my burden. So let's examine that further. First of all, I want to note three things tonight. I want to note, to begin with, the significant parallels. You see, we're seeing a parallel here, aren't we? Again, Matthew chapter 12, for as Jonas, so shall. We're being encouraged to compare these two situations and two circumstances. First of all, note the parallels in the timing. It's mentioned explicitly, and so let's start there. I won't spend long here. Uh, the timing is three days and three nights. Now, again, I mention this not, not because it's the substance of tonight's message, but because it causes questions sometimes. There are a couple of views here. There are those who say three days, three, or sorry, three days, three times twelve, three nights, three times twelve, seventy-two hours. They have this sort of period of time as the seventy-two hours. The Lord is in the grave, Jonah in the wheel. But more than likely, the three days and three nights reflects a Jewish idiom, a term of phrase, where any part of three consecutive days could be termed by this idea of three days and three nights. And so I understand, and if you're here tonight, and you have an idea that the Lord was crucified earlier in the week, and then 72 hours, and then rose again the first of the week, if that's your opinion, I'm not going to fight about it. I don't hold it. I'm not going to fight about it. I've just mentioned it to you. It's there. People ask about it. They discuss it. What does it mean three days and three nights? Friday, Saturday, Sunday. In Jewish idioms, that works. That's the timing. Let's move on. Note secondly, and more importantly, the terrors encountered. I'm going to go back now, please, to Jonah chapter 2. For in Jonah chapter 2, remember last night we noted some of the terrors that Jonah experienced as his soul fainted and he felt overwhelmed. You've got the language again of chapter 2 and the verse number 3. For thou hast cast me into the deep, 
in the midst of the seas. The floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then verse number five. The waters compassed me about even to the soul. The depth clothed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet thou hast brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. My soul fainted within me. You see the terrors that John encountered. You can imagine yourself as he's cast over that sea, over that, over that ship, and he falls into the sea. You can imagine the terror of his soul. Vivid language that pictures for us, but only faintly, the agonies of our Savior. There are parallels here. We're being encouraged to see these parallels. The three days and the three nights of Jonah are akin to the time of our Savior, and we're being encouraged to see something of the sufferings of our Savior here. I take you to the garden. I take you to the Lord as he makes his way towards the cross. And I ask you to go in your mind's eyes and join with those disciples as they go a little further and the three accompany the Savior. And he goes further. And in Luke's gospel, read the words, being in an agony. The sense of the agonies of our Savior as the cup is presented before him. The wrath of God that he was going to take for sinners. That wrath has come before him and he experienced a sense of, of the overwhelming agonies of the work of the cross. It is said of him, the floods compass me about. The sense of the wrath of God coming upon him and the agonies of our Savior. You think, if you could turn back to the Psalm 22, the 22nd Psalm, of course, we know to be messianic, and I want to use this really to prove this concept of the Lord being pictured and paralleled to Jonah's sufferings in Jonah chapter 2. The Psalm 22 begins, well-known words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? From the words of my roaring, O oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and the night season, and I'm not silent. It's, it's like John in chapter 2, verse 4, I am cast out of thy sight. The Lord's coming to the cross, and as darkness descends, like the darkness of the deeps, the darkness of the cross, the Lord experiencing that overwhelming darkness, and the agonies. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Again, Psalm 22, verse 11, he says this, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. There are parallels here. The terrors encountered by Jonah and by our blessed Savior. Of course, the question must be asked, Why? Why is Jonah in the sea? Why is Christ on the cross? Well, you turn back to Jonah chapter 1, and you'll get an indication, a subtle indication, but it's precious. Jonah chapter 1, 
The mariners asked the question, What shall we do unto thee that the sea may become unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea become unto you. And verse 15, So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Jonah is cast out so that others may live. He's cast out that the storm would be stilled. The storm that was coming because of God's judgment upon Jonah, because of his sin, the storm comes due to Jonah's sin, and he's cast out into that sea in the judgment of God, and when he's cast out, the storm stills. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Jonah is in the sea because of his sin and his guilt. Christ is on the cross because of sin. I know you folks, you know this, not his sin. But he's no less guilty. Our sins are laid upon him. The Lord have laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was made sin for us and his guilt there be imputation. And so as Jonah is cast into the sea so that others may live, so Christ is cast into the wrath of God so that others may live. Christ experiencing the terrors of God's judgment. Jonah is only a type of Christ. His sufferings are only a faint shadow of Christ's sufferings. Christ is the substance forsaken, the darkness of God upon him. The waters compass me about, even to the soul. The depth closed round about me. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottom of the mountains. This is precious. It's precious for several reasons. But remember that if Christ is your Savior, He is your substitute. And He suffers these things so that you will not suffer these things. Christ's death secures your peace. No storm of God's wrath. That is your comfort and your assurance. But it's also worth noting just briefly that what we said last night, when you feel overwhelmed and you remember the Lord and you look to the Holy Temple, remember that you're looking towards a high priest who's touched with the feeling of your infirmities. You're being overwhelmed. It's so, so little compared to what Christ suffered upon the cross. But He's able to succor you and help you in all of your tribulations. So you see, the terrors encounter. And thirdly, in these matters, you see the terms employed. Again, we're trying to indicate again that there are significant parallels here. And the terms that are employed in Jonah chapter 2 are also employed with regards to Christ's work and resurrection. Jonah chapter 2, you read this significant phrase, Out of the belly of hell cried I. Again, this is a translation of the word sheol that occurs often in the Old Testament. Sometimes it does indicate the literal place of the damned. Other times it indicates the grave. And here the sense is being used in that way. 
Jonah is, if you like, in his own experience, he's going down into the grave, the grave of the sea, Sheol. Note also verse number 6, the word corruption is used here. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. Now keep those two words in mind, hell and corruption, and then turn back again to the Psalm 16 now. For in the Psalm 16 we have these very same words, but now used prophetically regarding the Messiah. Now we know Psalm 16 is messianic, because Peter used it in the sermon on the death Pentecost regarding Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And so in Psalm 16, verse number 10, it says this, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. The same two words used in Jonah chapter 2, used here in Psalm 16, taken by Peter in Acts chapter 2 to prove the fact of Christ's resurrection. He was not left in the grave. His impeccable humanity would see no corruption. And not like David, who's still in the grave, Jesus rose again from the grave. The terms are used so that a careful student of the Word of God would understand to see in Jonah chapter 2 messianic imagery. They would have in their minds Psalm 16. A, a careful Bible scholar would see in Jonah 2, Psalm 16, and Peter puts it all together and says, His name is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is the one who was laid in the grave and yet rose again from the grave, seeing no corruption. Doesn't it blow your mind to see the plan and purpose of God? We've just scratched the surface of two chapters of Jonah and think about all that God has done. He's shown, or he's purposing all this to show his mercy to Nineveh, a wicked city, their wickedness come before him, and yet he's going to show his mercy to Nineveh. At the very same time, he's sanctifying Jonah, working in Jonah's soul. At the very same time, while doing all of that, he's saving a company of sailors. God's doing all of this, all of this work in a couple of chapters. But it's even better than that. Because behind all that, every part of this narrative is governed by the plan of God from all eternity to redeem sinners. The plan that goes before time itself, is being executed here in Jonah chapter 1 and 2 through the coming and the dying and the burying and the rising of the Son of God, Christ will accomplish redemption. Think of the timing here. Jonah's time in the fish is governed, if you like, by God's perfect stopwatch. He's a time period. Jonah will not be in that fish one second quicker, one second longer than the plan of God. And that time is governed by God's plan of redemption on the week of passion. The order is important. Jesus dying the day before the Sabbath 
rose on the first day of the week, so bringing about a new Christian Sabbath. All of this timing in the plan of God, and it is the timing of the resurrection of Christ that governs the time of Jonah in the wheel. You see, part of the function of the types is to show us that God's plan predates the gospel record. God's plan for Jesus in Nazareth predates Jonah. God knew the timetable in Jerusalem on the week of Passion before time itself. And the plan of redemption is governing the events in the Mediterranean Sea all those years earlier. The fulfillment governs the details of the type. So the plan for fulfillment must predate the type. You know, you've got to think that over. When you look back, though, you see yet again that Christ's death on the cross, His burial and resurrection, was not governed by the actions of men, but by the sovereign action of the Almighty God. And yet, for some strange reason, people still believe there's some other way to get right with God. They're not satisfied with the eternal plan of God that governs all of human history to such detail that it governs a man in the Mediterranean Sea and the time he spends in a fish. And yet they look past the sovereignty of God over human history to look to themselves, a puny creature, and think to themselves, I can do better than that. I can save myself. Or I look to some other false religion. There is no other truth. There is no other way to get right with God but through the person of Jesus Christ. This alone is a powerful sign of the truthfulness of the gospel. Believe and be saved. But secondly, We've noticed these parallels, significant parallels. Please note, secondly, the supernatural power involved here. Again, please note what Matthew says, or Jesus says. It is a sign. It's a sign. It's a miracle. What happens to Jonah is a miracle in the power of God. And so I go back to Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. That's just fanciful. These are old-fashioned people who didn't know any better. Now, I'll just tell you what God's Word says. The Lord spoke to the fish, and the fish heard. And out came Jonah. It's a miracle. I said last night that people tried to defend the account of Jonah, well-meaning people, by finding similar accounts. Somebody somewhere in some bygone age had a similar experience. It's challenging to live in a fish's belly, I assume. Can't imagine the environment's very pleasant. I'm not sure of the air quality. Don't know about all of that. I'll be honest, I, I don't think a man left to himself could live. But I believe in the power of God. It's called the sign. You know, we, we try to have a natural explanation for this and say to ourselves, well, we've got to explain this naturally. Why would you do that when the Bible says it's a sign? It is actually a miracle. We're meant to see it that way. We're meant to see in Jonah chapter 2 the power of God, 
the miraculous power of God. By a miracle, he was swallowed. Miracle number one. Can't imagine that was easy. Miracle number two, he survives. Miracle number three, he spat out. All of this is the mighty power of God. A miracle that only God can do. You see, God shows himself in paganism and in pluralism by an act that only an almighty living God could do. True in Nineveh, only God can bring Jonah to Nineveh. True in the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is unashamedly an act of God's supreme power. As Peter puts it in Acts chapter 2, whom God hath raised up. And the Bible doesn't pretend there's no such thing as miracles. It doesn't try to give a natural explanation for that which cannot be explained. Again, we live in such a science-oriented mindset that if something cannot be repeated, it mustn't be true. No, God's miracles don't need to be repeated. One virgin birth is enough, and one resurrection of the Savior is enough. The power of God, all three persons of the Godhead, operating in this wonderful miracle. Galatians chapter 1, and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The Holy Spirit, 1 Peter 3, verse number 18, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Christ himself says, I will raise it up, speaking of the temple of his body, John chapter 2. The certainty of the gospel rests in the certainty of the resurrection. He said, I don't know what day it was, now I've lost track of the days. Hundred years ago, Christianity and Liberalism was written by Professor Gresham Mitchin. The liberal agenda seeking to question and give explanation for the Bible. And so the miraculous becomes allegory. And there's denials of the vital truth claims of God stepping into human history with the miraculous. Dear people, there is no gospel without the historical facts of the gospel. I, again, I, I think I'm preaching to the choir right now, and most of you are in a choir, so that's easy enough. You, you, you understand these things. You get the idea. I know you do, but I want you to make sure you hold on to this because there's an, an increasing and continual agenda to deny the truth claims of the Bible and to suggest in a modern intellectual world that you really don't believe these things, do you? And we must stand in the public square and say, yes, we do. Here I stand. We believe in the absolute authority of the Word of God. And when God says, Jesus rose again from the dead, we believe that. And if that is not true, then your faith is vain. Young folks, if Christ has not raised, leave this church right now and go and do your own thing. No point in your faith, no point in any preaching. Close the meeting, let's all go home. But he is not here, he is risen indeed. We serve a risen Savior. And the resurrection is an act of God's power. The one who suffered 
the waters over his head and those hours of darkness as the wrath of God poured upon the Son of God, he did not stay in the tomb. He rose again, and there is no other explanation for the events of that first day of the week. No swoon theory. Doesn't make sense. It doesn't do justice to the narrative. No stolen body. They tried that and failed that concocted notion. No such thing as hysterical, hallucinating woman imagining something in that twilight hour. None of these things. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 takes the pains to prove all of those who witnessed Christ, some of them who were still alive and could be asked, He is not dead, He is alive. I think we need to learn this again. When I was down in Ballymagurney, I got a letter one day, handwritten letter. And it came from a dear saint of God, not, not a free pastorian, but a dear saint of God who had written to me. Somebody had put a tract through his letterbox, and uh, he wrote to me thanking, again, the church for their evangelistic desire and zeal, but suggesting to me that the tract was not a gospel tract. I, and the minister here will understand this. You begin to prickle. Who do you think you are telling me this? You get a bit uppity. But then I read the letter. And he pointed out that the tract, which wasn't a narrow niche tract, it was a tract that purported to outline the whole gospel. It made no mention of the resurrection. You know the Catholic crucifix? He's still on the cross. Every single sermon in the book of Acts mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You go and look at that. Read the sermons. Each and every sermon in Acts mentions the resurrection. We preach Christ crucified. But the crucified Christ, His work on the cross is sealed by His glorious resurrection. Dear child of God, go out there and preach this stuff. Go out there and use the resurrection to stand in the face of unbelievers and say, I serve Christ because Christ is true. And I stand upon the ground of the resurrection. Paul, as he closed the sermon in Acts chapter 17, says that God hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. So that's Again, something of the supernatural power involved here. And finally, please note in closing the saving purpose here. Again, we're going back to Matthew chapter 12. And thanks for jumping back and forward tonight. Matthew chapter 12. I want you to notice that in Matthew 12, when the Lord deals with a sign, He refers to the sign of the prophet Jonas in verse 40. We've seen the parallels there and the power of God involved in these things. And then please note in verse number 41 what it says, The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Why? Because they repented of the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. You see, I want you to see that the Lord God giving a sign, a miracle, the sign of Jonah or the sign of the Son of Man, the Lord God giving the sign 
was purposeful. It was intentional. It was to provoke a response. That's what I want to do right now. So we can talk about these things and enjoy considering them again tonight. But the purpose of this sign was to bring about the repentance of those who experienced that sign. It's interesting, over in Luke chapter 11, again, the parallel to Matthew chapter 12, just turn there quickly, you'll see something significant in Luke 11, the verse number 30. Again, the parallels there, they're seeking a sign from heaven. We saw that in Luke 11. And then you have in the verse number 29, this is an evil generation. They seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of Jonas the prophet. But please note how Luke records it here. For as Jonas was a sign unto the Ninevites. doesn't mention here the three days and the three nights in the whale or in the grave. doesn't mention that here. Now, again, there's no contradiction here. All of this is part of the Lord's teaching. But the Lord is making the point that the sign is the fact, again, that Jonah leaves the fish's belly and enters into Nineveh so that he himself, if you like, as a, as a risen person, is the sign from God. As the risen person, he manifests the proof of God's marvelous mercies. And so it happens. Well, one man says this, many first century Jews believed that the Ninevites repented when Jonah preached because they knew God spoke through him, and they knew this because they knew God saved him from drowning. That's interesting. The idea is that when Jonah enters Nineveh, he either showed evidence of being in a fish's belly. You can imagine what that might look like or smell like. Or else he gave testimony of what happened to him. But either way, if Jonah is the sign, it seems to be the case that as the sign from heaven, he himself in his risen person gave proof of the message being preached. Now, now he's coming warning them, judgment's coming, we'll see that in the next number of nights. But he himself is the proof God attested and confirmed his message, the person and the preaching, and they responded. The sign was meant to bring about a response. Jonah had to go into the depths. He had to be swallowed. He had to be raised again in order for the Ninevites to repent. The idea is that if that hadn't happened, they would not have repented. The sign was necessary to bring about the repentance. And so it is clearly shown in the Word of God that it is God's will for you to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. The sign of Christ's resurrection did not happen in a corner. It happened in the center of the then known world and was spread to all corners through the preaching of the evangelists, each and every one of them mentioning the resurrection of Christ. And it goes to all corners. And Christ, through the apostles, is the sign of the truthfulness of the free offer of the gospel, that all who believe in Christ shall indeed be saved. It is God's will tonight for you to repent and believe the gospel, because Christ has risen from the grave. 
And tonight, you're hearing the preaching of that glorious resurrection. Turn, please, in closing to Acts chapter 17. I mentioned already this sermon on Mars Hill as Paul's in Athens. Acts chapter 17, the verse number 31. He's preaching to pagans. They have all manner of false gods, and even those gods they don't know. And he says there, because, verse 31, he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, wherefore he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Now that's an important verse, but please know what precedes it. The times of his ignorance, God winked that, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because the reality of a coming judgment. The Christ will need come and judge this world in righteousness. His coming in the future to judge is evidenced by His resurrection. But God comes to all of us tonight and says, repent and believe the gospel. He is alive. His death secures the forgiveness of sins. His resurrection proves that. Therefore, tonight, dear sinner, repent and believe the gospel. Christ's resurrection is infinitely greater than Jonah's. He actually died and rose. And He rose not only to speak the truth, but He rose to triumph over the death and the devil and all things. Don't let the Ninevites condemn you in the judgment. They heard the word and believed. The fact of the idea of them being there in the judgment is a proof that they believed the gospel. They heard the truth. The Lord warns that they'll condemn those who do not believe the gospel. There is no bigger decision than to follow Christ Jesus. No. Your life will never be the same again. You may lose friends. You may, if it's God's will, even lose your life for Christ's sake and the gospel. No other decision will have greater consequence in your life. But it's really not a difficult decision. The gospel is true. Therefore, make the decision with certainty. And then be courageous. Give your all for Christ's sake and the gospel. Please bow with me in prayer. Eternal God and Father, again we're before thy presence. Again, mindful, dear Father, of many lives in this gathering. Some will, Lord, have had a spurious understanding of the gospel, haven't lived with the confidence of the truth and of Christ and His resurrection. We pray, O Lord, for some wavering young people. They're like those on Mount Carmel, halting between two opinions, following this world and yet seeking to have some connection with the Savior. O God, may they declare tonight Jesus Christ is Lord, the one who died and rose again from the grave. Pray, O oh God, for a band of people from this church to take the news of Christ's resurrection boldly into this locality.
that you will do a mighty work and glorify the Son. Thank you again for your help and your grace tonight. May we go in thy fear with your favor resting upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.